and welcome to Elixir Talk, your favorite Elixir podcast featuring soothing classical music. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Hello there, Desmond. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Have you ever um, listened to our intro music? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, to be honest, full disclosure, I don't usually listen back to the podcast because I find it really weird. Okay. But I have listened to the intro many times through accidentally playing it when I'm looking at our SoundCloud stats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the music. I think it, I think it does a good job of delivering a level of sophistication that some of those other podcasts don't. But have you ever listened to the music, like the Goldberg Variations? No. Oh, you mean like outside of the podcast as well? No. Yeah, like has it sparked your interest in classical music? Uh, definitely not. It sparked my interest <laughs> in... Uh, actually, nothing. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have I have nothing more to add. I just haven't listened to it, but now I feel like some kind of unsophisticated, uncultured man, you know. So, well, you could start by listening to the podcast. Yeah, that's that's true. Don't you find it weird, like listening to yourself speak, though? I did for a while, but like I've I've played in bands for most of my life, so I've been in and out of recording studios, and I've just ended up having to listen to myself a fair amount. Right. I also edit this podcast, so I have to listen to myself then. (laughs) And me. And And whatever guests are on. And, yeah, everyone. But, I mean, listening to you when I'm editing is no different from listening to you in real life. But That's true. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people feel weird about hearing their own voice because you don't usually play it back. You just hear it inside of your head. But after a moment, it's fine. I, yeah, I, I still haven't really got used to it. I don't know. I really wanted to just like do a troll to everyone right now and be like, and we've got a special guest and then be like, not really, because today we don't actually have a, de- a guest, do we? So it's just you and me, buddy. Well, if you are listening back to your voice, maybe that could be a kind of special guest. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen to future Chris. So, uh, yeah. So what's <laughs> been going on? Like, what kind of what kind of programming have you been doing, if any? Um, what have I been doing? I haven't been doing programming this week. What I was doing was, um, working on the Elixir training website, which, uh, quick plug, let's talk about Elixir training. Um, well, no, let's not plug it. First, I will say what I was doing, which is building the site in, um, a platform called Webflow, which is like a WYSIWYG editor for the web. And it, it works pretty well. I have to say, if anyone has been searching for, a solid solution for designing sites without writing HTML. Um, it works pretty well. I've been building websites for 20 years now. I have to say, works out all right. So, you know, mostly figuring out how that works and what it wants me to do. It helps knowing, like, what the underlying CSS will end up being. I feel like most of the reason why you're doing that is so you don't have to write CSS, right? Yeah, I mean, I was writing this Flexbox stuff anyway and figuring out how everything would get laid out. And then you have to switch your, write your media queries. And then I started off like, oh, I'll just write CSS. And then it's like, well, it doesn't have great variable support. It doesn't have great support for mix-ins. I'll just use SAS. And then I got to get my SAS preprocessor. And then I have to convert all my style sheets. And then I have to segment my style sheets into variables. And You know, there are all like CSS variables right now. You don't have to use SAS anymore. Yeah, I started with that. And then what did I want? I think I just wanted like composability. Right. You know, to be able to say 
all of the tables should look like this mm -hmm. um, without applying it to like the table element. And yeah, went through one or went through one or a couple of these things, and ended up chatting with a buddy midway through it. And he's like, "You got to try this." And I was like, "Fine," and it's been great, honestly. So you know, there's like this also this thing called like a class name that you can put on your elements, and then you can apply styles through that as well, right? Are people not using IDs anymore? <laughs> Are you laying out everything as tables still? Is that what you're trying to tell me right now? <laughs> well, you're not supposed to use tables anymore, right? It's all it's all divs these days. I mean, tables are good for tabular data. Like that's that's it. But as a as a complete aside, did you see that tweet where someone explained why tables are called tables? Uh, no, I didn't see it. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. But basically, it has something to do with like counting money, and like it was on top of a table, and like that's apparently why we think about tabular stuff being like that that could also be someone completely trolling the shit out of the uh programming community you know it would be pretty easy i'm pretty sure tables come from spreadsheets which have been around for a while right right right, right. but i'm thinking about like pre that right like database tables i i would have assumed that that predates that notion but that could be wrong as well Spreadsheets predate database tables. I mean, VisiCal came out in 1980, but before that, and this is weird, there used to be like manual spreadsheets, like pieces of paper with columns uh, or with a grid, and you would write a thing in it, and then someone else would have to like fill out all the things, all the other cells. And if you wanted to change something, you have to erase them. What about if I wanted to sort it? Then you would erase them and <laughs> rewrite it, or maybe copy. Why it to do you know thing. about this? I saw some documentary about VisiCalc a long time ago. What? Like, the electronic spreadsheet did not come from nothing. Right. It was just super <laughs> convenient to have it that way on a computer instead of by hand. Yeah, that's <laughs> when you when you phrase it as like someone going through and having to redraw every cell, which, I you know, doesn't sound great. But um, I'm really glad the spreadsheet exists. I know, right? I'm sure it blew away a ton of jobs, though. Just right. overnight. And and all these years later, startups have continued to innovate by saying, what are people doing in a spreadsheet? And then figuring out a way to make that better. I like spreadsheets. Um, my first job out of college was in accounting and I worked in Excel all day. And it's Excel is pretty cool. You can do a lot with it. Yeah. I know that a lot of what we do is automating what people do in Excel. But sometimes like Excel is just better. You don't need a, a web app. You don't need a credit app. You don't need whatever. Hmm. Sometimes. Sometimes. You know, one thing I was thinking about that we haven't talked about yet, which I'm amazed that we haven't mentioned, the new Picard Star Trek series that they have just finished recording. Uh, is there much to say about it other than it's happening and I'm looking forward to it? Yeah, but did you see like the teaser trailer thing? Uh, is that the one where he's walking through the vineyard? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Didn't you think that was like cool because it evoked many <laughs> elements of like the next generation and there's like lots of tie-ins and I was I got really excited about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, except like there's nothing to get excited about yet because oh Picard he's old and yeah he has a vineyard and like okay well that doesn't tell us much about the show. It's true. Is there going to be a spaceship? Is he going to be on Earth most of the time? Who else is going to? I mean, I think they released a cast list, but like. It doesn't tell you anything about the characters. I did see, like, um, 
Jonathan Frakes is directing. So I thought that oh, was cool. Yeah. yeah. I bet everyone's going to make a cameo. Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah, at some point, right? Yeah, I'm sure they'll all be on there. Well, yeah, I'm sure there'll be like a lot of cameos, but I, I'm just happy they're doing something. I, I think it's cool. Like it's, I, you know, I am, I don't know. I just, I love Picard, so I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a great thing. Hey, do you know what else I was thinking we should do? What's that? Answer some questions. Oh, uh, great idea! Right? You noticed I stopped saying that in the intro. Yeah, I noticed. But for all those listeners out there, we do still want to hear from you. Like, I think it's really important that uh, you feel like you can ask us things. And Desmond and I try our best to be as approachable. And we'll, I mean, we're definitely not the most knowledgeable. I think we should <laughs> caveat all of this with that every time. But like, between us, we have some number of years of Elixir experience. And we have actually been doing this and shipped a bunch of production apps. And hopefully you're listening to this because of that. Um, but like, we, we don't know everything and we're not on the core team and we're certainly not the smartest people, but like, we really want to help and we really want to, um, you know, just help the community in whatever way we can. So that's why we like to try and answer questions. Uh, I think you're right. Like, what do I think you're right about? Yeah, we have to, <laughs> yes, we are not the smartest people around. <laughs> um and yeah we actually i was thinking about it the other day when i was putting together the elixir training site like we have been doing this for a while and we yeah. have put a bunch of apps in production i i think and this is my like fourth year of doing elixir and my fifth production elixir app or something mm -hmm. and that's cool i mean i was talking to someone the other day about how their team is learning elixir and it's going all right they're making progress and and they're mostly teaching themselves and i flash back four or five years to when i was teaching myself and i thought yeah it's cool you can totally do that it's going to take you years to get like to where you're really productive and i started thinking about all the mistakes i made along the way and all the times that i thought i wish i could just ask someone who knew the answer you know you spend three or four hours bum banging your head against some problem, trying to Google something like, how does this work? What's going on? And I wish that I could have just like turned to an expert, not even an expert, just someone who had been doing this for a couple years and taken their bumps and gathered that knowledge, been like, hey man, like what's the story here? What do I do with this? And they're like, oh, well, you want to pass these arguments or you want to use a plug or an ETS table or write concurrency or mm. send this message or whatever it is. And um, yeah, that's cool. It's easy to gloss over that years later. What's the thing that you still get tripped up on in Elixir? Like, what, what, like when you're sat down to writing it, like what trips you up even now? That's a good question. What trips me up? I, I can tell you mine, which is basically I always forget the arguments to reduce every single time <laughs> because, uh -huh. the, the, like, this is really annoying. In JavaScript, it's the other way around. The accumulator comes... Hang on, now I'm not going to get this right. Which way around <laughs> is it in Elixir? I'm, I'm going to totally budge this and like everyone's going to be like, oh, you got it wrong, you don't know the language. But basically, I have to look at the docs like every single time I go to write a reduce because otherwise I get it wrong and then I'm banging my head for ages. So I don't screw that. If I'm writing it, I remember. But I know it's the opposite from what Ruby does. Right, so in Elixir, it goes... X and then accumulator. Element and then 
accumulator. Yeah, element that you're like looping over and then the accumulator, yeah. But in um in JavaScript it goes accumulator and then element, which is very annoying. And also like I think in JavaScript you put the default or or the what you're accumulating into as the last argument after you've done your like your um closure thing. So you know what's nice about the elixir way though is that if you're passing a like a named function to your reducer, then you can have that named function switch on the first argument like if the element is um yeah, 2 or I don't know, less than 10 or whatever it is. I think that's a little cleaner than switching on I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. You could switch it, on You could do on either, but like I I kind of see where you're coming from it being the primary thing that you're looking at and the accumulator is secondary almost like I can yeah. get that. But like that's like one of those tiny things that always trips me up and I like even now like I'm not I don't know about you. I'm just like useless at remembering things in programming continuously. Like I have to look at docs all the time. And like, I think that's one area where I'm like, it's so nice that we have such great documentation, you know? You know what trips me up is um, ecto queries. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm constantly looking up syntax for ecto queries. What part? What? Just like all of it or? Just like, uh, <laughs> is this thing nil? And <laughs> how do I join these conditions? And how does or where work? And and where I, just, I always need to remind myself of that the so. and where is the easy one because like it's and by default so if you add another where it will just be an and where right yeah but the thing about the is nil where you can't you don't do a comparison you use a function of like is underscore nil mm-hmm. is kind of strange um and then the join to be honest as well i'm really useless at joins just in general like i i i still have to think about venn diagrams when i'm thinking about joins on database tables because mm-hmm. i am not that smart so i think a couple of months ago i was like fighting with some bug and it was because i accidentally accidentally did a right join instead of a left join yeah that'll do and it and it's like oh how come i'm getting no records back yeah or <laughs> well <laughs> the set that you just didn't want yeah yeah exactly yeah but i i generally think like that like the ergonomics of like of um ecto queries they they look a lot like sql right and i think that's something that's like really appealing for people especially if they're newer to the language and uh you know you're using ecto for the first time it's not that crazy to like put it all together and see how it translates to the sql yeah but the the syntax that the macro introduces is funny because it's like just different enough from actual Elixir syntax that it's like, yeah, you know, it looks like I'm calling this function from, but then I, I have this unbound variable in table name or in query. It's like, wait a second. And, and then if you don't pin in the query... And then it yeah. always doesn't compile. Like every single time I think I, I write a query, I forget to do the pinning and it just yeah. blows up. It's also like, I didn't understand the from P in post thing, you know, that you have to do at the beginning where you say like, well, and most of the time you're like composing queries. So you'll do like from uh, Q X query. in query. Yeah. Like that was always really funky to me. And I was like, why, why is it like that? But like, that's because it's sometimes a list as well, right? Like you can do, uh, uh, yeah. If you have passed in a query that has named a couple of tables, then you can extract those back out. I literally learned that like last week. That's cool. I've never had to use it. 
Well, I was doing something where I joined on something else and then I wanted to compose other queries and I needed that. So, mm. but then it's kind of like you're coupling those two queries together anyway because it has to know that there's something named on it, right? So, yeah, I mean, so this is the thing that I, I do really like about Ecto is that it's easy to compose stuff. And yes. I kind of, I'll tie myself up sometimes with like over composing things, but I really like that part of it. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, have you ever like have you done Ecto with um, materialized views or anything like that? Yeah, we did that at my last job. Ah, uh, okay. Because like you can treat it like a just a regular table, right? Basically, yeah, it acts like a table. Yeah, I did see that. I was like looking at an old issue on Ecto where they were going to introduce some um, like migration helpers for writing the the views, which would have been cool, mm-hmm. and like. You like in in the example, I, I they closed the issue for some reason. I think it introduced some other complexity into Ecto. Um, but you could have said like create view, and then you you could write an Ecto query that would then populate that view, which would have been cool rather than having oh, yeah. to write the raw SQL, right? Yeah, that stuff where you're like getting into programming Postgres, like writing triggers and stuff and uh, built-in functions. Yeah, I don't know. It seems really cool, but then it gets to like, where does my application logic live? Is this discoverable by other engineers? Do you? Um, I, I feel like a few years ago, this was like the thing, right? Where everyone's like, just use the database, and like it was like such a hot topic to talk about how you should, especially in like the Rails world, where it was like validations where we were doing everything in like application logic and there was that big movement for like hey you can't actually do constraint based like uniques just in application logic obviously there's always going to be a race condition right like yeah it seemed like a hype cycle uh rebound from rails's idea of oh just ignore your database and with active record you can like swap one database for another which have you ever done? Never done that. And <laughs> what a pain in the ass it would be. Except when no one used to develop with SQLite on their machine. Oh, yeah, SQLite. Remember you, that? Oh, oh, sorry. No one used to develop with Postgres and only used to develop with SQLite on your local machine. Which or was, MySQL. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Or that, which is a weird day. Weird times. And then, like, you'd get into some weird bugs when you went into production and then you realize that there was something wrong with your SQL and. Yeah, or but you know, to your to your point a moment ago, yeah, like the original Rails philosophy of just ignore your database, whatever, then turns around and bites people where they realize, oh, huh, you need your database to do certain things like constraints, uh, uniqueness checks, and um, oh, it turns out uh, databases have a lot of useful functionality built in. And then as they started digging deeper, it's like, oh, it turns out people have been working on these products for decades, yeah, and they've had to solve some of these problems without facile application level um constructs so let's just build it all in the database and then so everyone's like well let's just let's use this for what it's good at and i was on that train for a while too because it is i mean a materialized view is pretty powerful oh my god insanely yeah like i I, so i have a query right now that i'm like I, i know i could optimize by moving it to a materialized view but i'm also like we're not at the point where it matters, but like it's nice to have that option, right? Where you can have something that's like effectively caching at the DB level to make a new table mm-hmm. and then get really great read performance from it. It's like that's perfect. I mean, have you ever um, used Postgres for its uh, geospatial features? Uh, literally today, that's what I was doing. <laughs> Amazing. Did you? Did by the way, 
listeners, we did not pre-plan that. I'm I'm genuinely <laughs> shocked that you were asking about that because I in the past we did it as well. So when we um when we did Carver Grills I uh on- online ordering system. We used PostGIS for that as well. So um, PostGIS, which is an extension to Postgres, if you haven't used it, where you can do... Uh, what What does GIS stand for? Is it like glo- geographic or is it global? Um, Hold on. It's Look something information Google. system. I would assume, but I might have just got that wrong as well. Uh, Always look up say. terms before you say them. But yeah, well, PostGIS... No, we're doing this on the fly, right? PostGIS is this extension to Postgres that allows you to do uh, spatial and geographic objects for Postgres. And basically, uh, you can you can store like latlongs as a native type in your Postgres table. And then you mm-hmm. can actually use some like built-in query functions to say like, give me all of the places within X distance from this originating point or give me everywhere within this radius, right? So rather than writing that at the application layer, you can now actually move that to the DB layer. Um, and that, it's really fast as well when you start doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think it uses like binary data types under the hood to do this math. And if any of you have had to implement or copy <laughs> off of Stack Overflow the Haberstein <laughs> formula... Yes, uh, stuff is complicated, and yeah, it's going to be much faster in a database written in C that's operating on data types it understands natively. Right, and and you can create indexes on on those spatial types, which is great. So then you can just basically have a very very fast lookup on certain on lat long values, which is great. So, Rel- relatedly, did you know that Postgres also has geometry types? Like you could define a rectangle. I know that they have points, right? So you can mm-hmm. say. And then you can compose those points into doing into those geometry types. So yeah, yeah, and IP addresses and there's I I didn't know it was IP addresses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, there's probably there's yeah. I mean, we were doing like money types at some point in the past as well. I was like storing that in there. That got a bit weird though. But yeah, I don't know. I I think the 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 point is here is that the database is really good at doing things like storing data and querying data, right? And Postgres is an exceptionally good database for doing those things and has lots of great extensions, so you should definitely use that. But you cannot use Ecto to access some of these things. You have to write native Postgres queries. Right, but you could easily like write some functions that that wrapped fragments to do it right like that's effectively what um ecto post just does which is like gives you those querying functions that you can use so it sounds like what you're saying is don't be a sissy just write some sql and wrap it in ecto queries yeah i'm I'm fine with that i'm fine with that yeah honestly i think over the last like five years my sql has gone from like bad to abysmal because of the number of like (laughs) like abstractions that i have used (laughs) Uh-huh. And the question is, what would what would Captain Picard do? I think Picard would make it so and use a <laughs> database. What do you think? I couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you. Here all day, folks. Um, but what about what else trips you up? I'm like, I'm thinking about like, you know, we're doing this training soon, so we should talk about like where mm-hmm. we've trained people in Elixir and where they've been tripped up previously. <laughs> So, um, what's been tripping me up is Phoenix Contexts. Oh, God. Yeah. I was literally explaining that, I think, a couple of weeks ago as well. Uh, sometimes I think, like, a context is a user context. Or, like, that's when I... 
When I say a context is a user context, I mean a Phoenix context maps cleanly to a, a user context. So I can say, as an admin, I want to see this list of widgets. But oh. as a customer, I want to see that list. Like, that to me makes oh. sense. Uh, I think that makes sense in certain types of systems, but if you're dividing things up like that vertically, you're going to end up with like very long vertical slices, right? Where I uh-huh. think there will then end up being a lot of overlap between your contexts as a result. I'm cool with shared functionality mm. in a different module. but I well, So do you want to repeat back to the audience your understanding of context? My understanding of context. So yes. Phoenix Contexts um, was introduced in Phoenix 1.3, I believe, as a way to organize your code. And there is a there's an angle to building a Phoenix app, which is that Phoenix is not your application, which is in contrast to the Rails attitude of uh, your business logic is basically inseparable from the web layer, uh, including controllers, router, and and all that stuff. But you're encouraged with a Phoenix app to write your business logic as like, that's an Elixir application with um, its own entry points. You can access things on the uh, console very easily. And then Phoenix is a web layer, which encompasses the router, controllers, and templates for rendering. And you can have your business logic without the web layer. So in a, I think in a way to um, canonize that, they introduce context, which is a takeoff or a, um, a descendant of domain-driven design, which is to think about like key aspects of your business domain as first-class citizens. And then what, um, what does your application look like through the lens of each of those citizens? So then you could have a context of, let's say, blog post, and then... That blog post would contain uh, context would contain business logic for reading them, uh, fetching from the database, maybe updating and saving them. It would also include schemas for blog posts that are specific to that context. Now there might be a different context which also has a schema for blog posts, which could have a different set of fields. It could have different logic for fetching or saving blog posts. And people keep wondering, and sometimes I wonder. When does it go? When do you create a new context? Mm. At what point do I just have like the global context, which is how my app works? And at what point do I say, well, does this functionality belong here? Does this uh, feature set belong here? Does this user see just these things? Right, right. I uh, have the same thought about when do you break out a context? Like, the way I think about it, which is probably totally wrong, but I've had some success with scaling this pattern, is that the context is just a bunch of related functionality that could be extracted into its own service. That's the way I like to think about it. And it's like a grouping of 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 things that are all related together, right? So I like to have contexts that are very cup like very tied to my domain, first of all. Um, so I might have, if I am building something like Frame.io, which is a file sharing, it's like a video collaboration product, one of my contexts might be something to do with accounts. So everything to do with users, signups, like everything to do with managing those users, all of that kind of stuff that's kind of 
at the periphery of some of the the main kind of uh like main domain logic and then i would have stuff to do with assets so everything to do with like my file structures and things like that and that that like actually those are the only two contexts that we ended up having at frame and um they acted basically as buckets to put code in right that's related to those areas and Mm -hmm. there was crossover i think the key thing is like um there was crossover between those like two context areas right like so uh like a file belongs to a user and that user is referenced in the other context and i i don't know i thought that was okay in the ddd school of thought you have if you have entities that like cross the boundaries right like that you would have the entity at each um in each bounded context i think that's right right so DDD is domain-driven design. Yeah, sorry, that's a good point. Um, and I used to think that like there was this magical like we should all be building apps like that. But I think the reality is is that like DDD is is a good lens to apply, and I think there's a lot of really good concepts in there, especially about like basically one of the one of the big concepts is like um, speaking about your domain how your the people in the business speak about the domain right Mm -hmm. like having the same nomenclature and like making sure that everyone's using the same terminology and i think that's a really key um design decision that you should probably be making regardless um i think like this idea and i think like some people take it really far in ddd where it's like every context has its own database and like there's if you need shared things they like exist elsewhere or you figure out how to like insert them i but I've I've never worked on something that's like a very strong DDD design. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, crossover with DDD and event-driven systems because event-driven does have that attitude of each each service should know everything it needs to know to complete whatever task it needs to complete and should replicate data if need be. And I built a couple of these. And it seems like the sort of thing that's designed by high-level architects for very large systems yeah, and very right. like, distinct teams. And yeah. I mean, we've talked on this podcast a lot about how Elixir makes it easy to write like sort of mini event-driven systems and how one nice thing about functional programming is that it's easy to decouple parts of your application. So I think we can get the best of both worlds where you do have the separation and the nice encapsulation that that gives you and maybe even have different teams working on different apps in an umbrella without Mm -hmm. having to deal with like, oh, everyone has their own data store that they have to manage and possibly replicate data. Changes to um, schemas have to get broadcast out across teams. Uh, That introduces a lot of administration and overhead that you generally, it's not a cost you really need to pay for the benefits. Right. No, it makes sense. I, I, um, so we can link to some stuff in the show notes for some of this as well. Like, um, there, there's been a couple of really good blog posts about, uh, like how to think about Phoenix context, right? I think Devin, who we've had in the podcast in the past, did one. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember, I think there's one from Voitech. Uh, but I, I will dig into my reading history and find it but um oh and there was that really good talk from mpex la last year from andrew from carbon five who talked about um using phoenix context in a ddd context mm-hmm. right yeah so we'll we'll link to all of that in the show notes today um but one thing i did want to say 
is that I think don't spend too long trying to name every single part of your system and some of it like just develops naturally right and to your point like it's really easy to like pull things out when you need to so like don't go overboard and don't try and like name everything in this perfect like ivory tower kind of naming scheme that falls apart when you actually like get into the meat of your application you know I like the way I've started in the past is just like pull out some very big generic concepts and see how that how that plays out. Yeah, um, I generally treat contexts as services, like you say, before they yeah. introduce context, I would just call them user service or photo service or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a little confusing because the generators in Phoenix now assume that each new model has its own um, context. Right. I but I to be honest. I, oh, each new model. I didn't. I, I no, no, no. I think you can like choose where you put the models under the generator or something. But I, to be honest, I I can't even remember the last time I used the Phoenix generators. I I typically mm-hmm. just hand roll it because I'm like, by the time I've got that far, I'm like, oh, I need to do more than just like your basic crud kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, I thought it would be simpler to use a generator because it would give me um, the schema with all the fields filled out and the database migration. I thought, okay, let's try this. Mm-hmm. And then it was just like singular name, the plural name, the context name. Right. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I end up typically having like context and then inside of the context, there'll be things that I like to just call like service functions, which mm-hmm. are basically the things that do some of the business logic, right? Like find your values from the DB um like save them update them all of those kinds of things and then anything that's more specific um and then on top of that i then have like a folder that's called schema inside of the schema that's just going to be the ecto schema only with change sets and queries inside of it i'm weird i put my queries i co-locate my queries with my schemas Mm -hmm. and then i have another folder that i call policies that's everything to do with authorization so that to me sits at that layer and then the web layer will call the authorization layer. Um, and that's about it. I think that's like generally how they look. Like, And I might have some other things like event bus consumers and stuff like that that sits inside of those contexts. But yeah, that's how I, that's how I split mine out. So in your schemas folder, will you have more than one schema if you have? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So I'd have like user, um, organization, uh, like subscription, all of those scre- schemas. And they're always named singular uh, values but then i'll so like let's say our app is called thing i will do like um def module thing dot context name so that might be accounts and then dot user as the like the schema name and then my service will like like my collection of service functions would be named thing dot accounts dot users plural so the pluralized form is always the like the collection of services which I mm. think that's what the generator does by default, if I remember. Mm. I'm pretty sure I stole this pattern a long time ago. And I've, I like, you know, when you like just get into habits of like, you always build a system the same way. I, yeah. I or you... you have like a Ruby style guide that's just based on how you have seen people do it in blog posts. And then you contort <laughs> yourself trying to like backport some rules around when you apply parentheses and when you don't. Right, 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 right. Yeah, totally. I'm, yeah, now I'm just like, I'm just going to keep following the pattern that's worked for me for now and uh, hope that that continues to work for a while and try not to reinvent the wheel too much. I will say one thing I'm not down with is plural names. 
not you, you don't like plural names at all do you like um, calling thing like service at the end then rather than that uh what? not necessarily i will hmm. say like app dot company for the context and app dot company dot schema oh interesting you call um, it you would do that yeah because often enough like if i'm in the company context let's say and i'm i want to deal with the schema itself and so it's a really nice alias at the top of the file to alias oh, that file and then like, everything gets schema. called schema yeah that's i mean you could do that by just saying as schema as well if you really love that right mm-hmm. but i don't know naming things is hard so yeah I wonder that's... if that's what your parents thought when you were born. <laughs> but probably, yeah. And then I, I'm pretty sure, like, this might be a lie that my sister told me, but um, my dad used to really like Baywatch, and there was a character <laughs> called CJ, and so yes, he was, was obsessed with trying to call me, like, Christopher, and then with a J. So I am Christopher James, So, but never call me CJ, and please... That is hilarious you know who played cj right no that was pamela anderson's character oh that was her character yeah of course your dad liked her (laughs) i just shamed my uh my family and myself on t on i was gonna say on tv this definitely isn't tv i i definitely don't have the face for tv you know Mm -hmm. um so there we go but desmond we should wrap this show up Great. Well, before we do, um, let's give our readers another run-through of these Elixir trainings, now that we've established our credibility sure, as Elixirists in the community. Because um, even though there are some things we don't know, there's quite a few things that we've picked up along our Elixir journeys. And we would love to be able to share them with you so that you don't have to spend all the time we spent making mistakes, making mistakes of your own. Um, if you're interested we're offering a couple different types of trainings we're looking at a beginner's training for total elixir newbies to get up to speed with the language how to use it and really be able to come out of it with the ability to write a production application so it would include things like tooling and deployment and testing and we're also looking at a more advanced training for once you have the basics of how do i pass arguments into my reduce function how do i design applications how do these things fit together uh, what happens under the hood? How does a process spawn? How does a gen server work? What's the receive loop? Um, you may not necessarily need a receive loop in your normal code. In fact, you probably shouldn't be writing one, but it's nice to know what's going on under the hood so that you don't um, commit a rookie mistake like trying to access five elements deep into your list because lists are singly linked. So if you're interested in one of those, please get in touch. We have a brand new website up, which is elixirtraining.io. We're planning our North American tour later this year. Please let us know where you are so we can stop in your city. We'll probably drop by a handful, maybe a half dozen of cities in North America. So if you guys are interested, um, let us know where you are. We'll add you to the list. And also, if you are a manager or a CTO listening to this podcast and interested in adopting Elixir at your company, please also get in touch. We think there is another adoption track of workshops that's just for managers who don't necessarily need to know the order of arguments to the reduce function, but are interested in knowing how can this platform help your business be competitive. And if you do choose to adopt it, how do you attract new developers? How do you hire for it? What does the ecosystem look like? So we have answers to those questions. We have hired teams in Elixir. We have trained teams in Elixir. We've brought people who don't know how to use Elixir into companies 
and we have several success stories that we can share with you. So please also learn from our years of hard-won experience. And for more information, please visit our website, which is elixirtraining.io. We're really good at naming things. <laughs> Very matter of fact. We have a podcast called Elixir Talk and a training company called Elixir Training. So you should be able to remember that. Um, but yeah, sorry we didn't actually answer any questions after all of that and all of that <laughs> promise at the beginning. But um, thank you so much for listening. As always, we really, really appreciate it. We know, uh, well, we know that there's quite a lot of you out there listening to this and it's always great to hear from you all and we absolutely love doing it. So we can't wait to get out across the US. Come hopefully meet a few more of you. Hopefully we can do some meetups or something cool like that when we're over there or attend some meetups when we're in town. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and on that note, we're both going to be at ElixirConf. Um, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for something that MPEX might do around ElixirConf as well soon. Hopefully we'll have some more to talk about there on a future podcast. But um, we'd love to see you and like talk to some more of you at ElixirConf. Um, so yeah, we'll be there. So as always, you can get in touch with us at Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash ElixirTalk if you have any questions. Or you can open up a GitHub issue at github.com forward slash ElixirTalk forward slash ElixirTalk. We would love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you're getting it today. Uh, just hit that like button wherever you are. Give us a review. Tell your friends. i would be most appreciated. So thank you once again for listening to another episode of Elixir Talk. And keep, keep Elixir in. <laughs> <laughs>